welcome to The C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about contemporary art. I'm Jenny Mathiason, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator based in Cambridgeshire. Welcome to the show, Hello. everyone. And today we are joined by a special guest host, Sarah. Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Sarah Potter. I'm an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester, and I work in an art gallery and predominantly with contemporary art. Right, so should we try to come up with a definition of what contemporary art is, just so yeah. we're on the same page? I've got a list of essentially problems that I feel like define how some areas of contemporary art differ from okay say what we would consider a normal normal collection okay um, yeah, sure. and like any collection is ever normal <laughs> 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 but the thing i think the thing that i'm interested in particularly is the ethical side of things so okay, i'm yeah. really interested to talk to you sarah about about things surrounding that with living or not living artists i don't i, I don't really mind <laughs> no that sounds awful <laughs> don't mind if they're dead <laughs> yeah it's yeah, it's an absolute minefield. Well, especially with living artists, because they always have such ownership over an artwork. Even if um, an art gallery technically own the artwork, the artists will always have an intrinsic say in how the artwork um, lives or develops within the art institute, either through um, conservation treatments and repairs and how it's displayed. Um, so you can do all the documentation that you want when you acquire a work, but essentially a lot of the time the living artists will always want to say. And that is on the ethical level of who has ownership of an artwork once you've paid for the art. I mean, on the topic of they can be dead or alive is, yeah. you know, kind of the time span that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. How do we define contemporary? What does contemporary mean? Obviously, contemporary tends to mean present day, but it's it spans further back into time than that. So contemporary art. Yeah. I mean, so- I've, I've seen various definitions, you know, like I've seen people who argue that contemporary means from the 1950s onwards, sometimes Second World War onwards. And I've I've seen various definitions floating about. How do we feel about the, like, what timescale is contemporary? I'd always say that contemporary is from the 1960s onwards and that modern yeah. art is from, um, from, like, the period of the war. So you're mm. looking at, like, the difference between modern art and then contemporary art. Very different, different things. That's what I think. But. And is that based on whether or not the artist could be alive or the, the, the artist's um, sort of extended family could be alive? Or is that more just the kind of things that people were doing? I don't know. Or is it a change in um, techniques and technology and yeah, the, the mm. materials available to different artists and the shift in, in that aspect of time rather than if they're alive or dead? Is it, is it due to the technology? I mean, that's a really interesting aspect, isn't it? Because, if I mean, people can paint with oil colours today, but that's a traditional medium, but mm-hmm. that would still yeah. be contemporary art. So, you know, it's we tend to define things by time frame, but it's more interesting if we're starting to talk about techniques or the availability of different art materials. Layman's terms, like people do conflate modern and contemporary art, but that's not really what we're trying to do here. We're kind of trying to separate them out a little bit. We're trying to crowbar in there and go, actually, modern art means something and contemporary art means something else. But Obviously, with cont- the term contemporary art, there's two parts of it as well. And the other part of that is the art bit and where you draw the line between contemporary art 
and other kinds of contemporary artifacts that might be in museums for other reasons and what the difference Ooh. is between contemporary art and other kinds of contemporary <laughs> artifacts. Oh, we're getting meta oh, now. Uh, I didn't anticipate that oh, we'd we're be down the rabbit that. hole already. <laughs> <laughs> I know, sorry to... <laughs> You're just asking <laughs> what is art one. here. Uh, I mean, I, I suspect one of the differences is the authorship, you know, that the fact that there is a named artist and that that artist still maintains, as Sarah said, some kind of relationship with the artwork, even after it's been accessioned, which isn't the case for things that are just artefacts, if you like. Ooh. And another difference would be that art is something that is meant to be appreciated just for its aesthetic qualities oh i see and so, so not it's not something that's useful potentially be treated differently yeah oh. yeah absolutely oh, oh, oh these are interesting things because immediately i started thinking things like yes but what about fashion designers they are associated with like things yeah. that are very much created usually in factories in fact but it has their name and their branding and you could argue that there's a relationship there in terms of that person being linked to Ooh, that garment that's a yeah you know oh god <laughs> or, or, or design more generally actually where you've got um very significant pieces of say um furniture but i i suppose then we're into the territory of it being useful as well as so artists artists <laughs> <laughs> so so our working definition is stuff that's useless from the 1960s onwards. <laughs> <laughs> so Sarah, what do you think of that as a or the things that we've just said based on your knowledge of what you have in your collection and what you've seen in other people's similar collections? Well, I know our director wouldn't like to hear and um, people say <laughs> art's useless. <laughs> that's very much against against his uh, current philosophy and thinking and he's trying to think of ways to make art very useful. Let's just go with um, it's a definition in progress but yeah. that's fine. Right, art, so our experiences around the table of contemporary art then, what, what would that be? What does it look like for you Chloe? So for me well I've, I've mentioned on the podcast before that um, both my parents are artists Yes. but I feel like I could say so much about that, I could complain about working with artists so much just on a personally personal family level that I just won't <laughs> even go into it uh, don't use all these materials mum, no, put that foam away the, the experience that I've had in my current role working with artists has been very much secondary so our, um, the, the person who plans the exhibitions, the exhibitions officer is the primary person who discusses with artists and they tend to be quite new artists and radical artists as well. So my experience with it uh, is that they are not part of the collection so I don't have jurisdiction over their care. Okay, so more like loans. They're, they're, well, there are loans but they're not treated like loans because it's, it's a, a less formal relationship Oh, with the museum. Okay. So from a official point of view and the so how do I care for this like uh, situation, I find that really difficult because, you know, you're talking to an artist who wants people to touch things, wants people to, wants oh, yeah. people to interact with them, you know, sometimes likes the idea of people being able to change stuff. Yeah, yeah. And that's my, at the moment, that's my, my main experience with oh, um, working with contemporary art and contemporary artists. Yeah. Because they are often installation pieces. Mm. And recently I have had to cover an object that the artist previously wanted to have touchable, but then people started to break it because obviously that's, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. 
that's that's museums sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, yes. So it's the changing idea that working with artists, I suppose, to communicate the difference between displaying something in an art gallery mm. where people are very much less likely, I feel, to handle stuff yeah. than in a museum where we have interactives and things that people can handle. Yeah. Sort of communicating the difference between those two things and the potential harm that could be caused. Yeah. So that's my really long-winded... Um, try not to rant about it okay so my experiences are more limited in that we have a couple of contemporary pieces where I work now but I've not really worked very much with uh, certainly not in an interventive way I've you know condition checked like generally preventative stuff uh, for contemporary art and usually sculpture for example Mm -hmm. sometimes two-dimensional things Uh, sometimes we've had an installation piece on loan like we've got a long-term loan now of uh, an artwork that's a light box and that sort of thing so like my experience is quite limited that being said the museum I work at is actually in a park and there's quite a lot of kind of outside artwork going on Mm -hmm. because there's like a close relationship with a charity that does a lot of uh, artwork shops and all that stuff quite community-based really and some of that is completely made to be outside and and decay sometimes it's spray paint on plastic wrap you know like that's like (laughs) between two trees like the the preservation there is to take a photo of it and remember it and it's not really to like take the plastic down and try to look after it so in a way that's an installation piece that's not really meant to be conserved because it's and but then it doesn't belong to us it kind of belongs to the community and mm-hmm. the and in some ways i guess the park or like the people who yeah. visit the park it's not really ours it's not a museum piece as such it's so i can see the kind of informal relationship there maybe it's of a similar nature where it's like a yeah but then do people sorry this is off topic well not off topic it's (laughs) off uh, the circle discussion (laughs) okay do people then take off take the bits of that the remains of that artwork down and hand it to you and say can you look after this please that's not happened happened yet yet. okay um okay that's a fun thing i'm sure that will come up in the future (laughs) but it hasn't happened yet right I'm happy with. Yeah, so uh, my my experience is relatively limited, mostly loans, condition checking and uh, preventative care. Not really any anything interventive at all. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not packing away or reinstalling and that sort of thing, right? Yeah. It's, it's been pretty straightforward from my point of view. Um, how about you, Christina? Like a lot of object conservators, um, I guess, apart from Sarah, my experience is quite limited. And funnily enough, the experiences I have had of contemporary art have all been through ethnographic collections. And I think that's partly because museums that have those kinds of collections often collect things by living artists from particular communities. And those things are often three-dimensional and therefore come to the objects conservator. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about things like uh, pieces of contemporary Inuit sculpture, mm. uh, which we had in a museum that I worked in previously. And uh, more recently, I've worked in a museum which commissioned an artwork which is a sort of installation so it doesn't exist at the moment it's kind of disassembled but can be recreated and it's an installation by a contemporary maori artist that takes a teko teko which is a maori carved human figure out of wood which is already in the collection and then adds this whole sort of audio artwork around it as well and so the artwork consists of this figure and a pair of like 1970s headphones <laughs> love it um like absolutely massive plastic and and kind of metal wire headphones I'm not quite sure where she sourced them but there you go um and so uh you know my apart from uh, the the artwork itself gets set up by 
the technicians mm-hmm. in the museum you know that's 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 nothing to do with the conservators as such but my intervention was basically putting bits of melodex between the earphone pads and the actual sculpture in the collection as well and there's and that's partly because although these headphones are not strictly part of our collection they're part of the artwork and yeah. so well, you know we found ourselves having to care for those in the same way even though i'm not sure if they're actually accessioned objects or not but they're, they're sort of certainly part of something that can be used with an object that is definitely already in the collection to create a contemporary audio artwork. Oh, that's so interesting. But apart from that, very, very little. Sarah, what about you? So um, I'd say the majority of my time at the moment is actually spent doing installation art and um, predominantly a lot of loans come in. But we do have quite a lot of within our collection that needs either treatment. So we do quite a bit of treatment on some of our objects um, they're very contemporary, so we have um, quite a large collection of artwork by outsider artists. So these are artists who haven't traditionally been trained or taught in art colleges and art schools, and they use a lot of unusual materials or really materials that can be found around the house. So some of these sculptures contained bread and chewing gum, and um, dust and hair, uh, latex, plastics. You know, lots of lovely materials like that that can be challenging. <laughs> and you think, oh gosh. So um, there's always lots, so much to learn and so much to read, especially within conservation. A lot of that material isn't really studied or learnt about. So you end up doing quite a bit of research around these materials and understanding them and then trying to figure out what's the best way to treat them where possible. We do have some collections where the artists still are very much involved in the treatment process and they want to kind of sign off on the final treatments that you actually do to the artwork and some artworks they won't actually let you treat themselves I want you to send them back to the studios and the studio will treat the objects even though they belong to us so they still have very much an ownership over those artwork even though technically the gallery own them so that's quite an interesting aspect to some of the works that we have Um, and then as I say quite during quite a lot of our installation works we change over our gallery spaces quite regularly so we have quite a lot of loans in um, with a lot of contemporary pieces as well so this can be from media so digital artwork so lots of video installation and audio to a full-on installation artworks at the moment we have well we actually own um six meter by six meter latex sheet so i was installing that last week which was quite interesting sounds amazing yeah so it's called um the ethics of dust and it's by jose otto polios He's a Spanish artist who used the conservation technique of pulling latex off a brick wall as a poultice to remove the dust behind it. And so then so then <gasps> oh, he hangs wow. this latex sheet or we suspend it in the air and, and shine light and then it becomes the artwork of all this removed dust, this building material that then once belonged on this brickwork um, and what belonged and was part of the wall for so many years and then becomes the artworks. It's all... Yeah, so there's quite a lot of interesting interesting work and you're always learning which is fantastic with contemporary art because all of these unusual materials that you just never never knew could be made into art so sarah that's really cool you said you're you described yourself as an object conservator yes how did you end up conserving contemporary art so i started originally as an object conservator in a museum and then i've slowly migrated towards an art gallery and they have quite a large collection of traditional artwork as well so um you know marble sculpture bronze works and then i'd say so half of the collection is contemporary half the collection is quite traditional so it's just the way that the gallery has progressed over time and the way that we've acquired works it's just become more and more contemporary works because they're still acquiring and collecting now 
This reminds me, do you remember that a couple of episodes ago I joked that I should audio test uh, sanitary products because yes. of an artwork that yes. you'd encountered? Yes. It just makes me think of that, like who's done research on this and sometimes you have to do really weird research. Like, yeah, uh, And sometimes you have to do it yourself, which is like one of those very odd things. But that must also be really enjoyable working with contemporary art. Like just this really weird stuff, like you end up just researching, okay, what's in crayons? And absolutely, yeah. What's um, photocopying paper actually like, and what's the longevity of it? You know, like yeah, all this crazy stuff that I actually think is really fun. And I bet someone out there has done something on, but you might have to dig in unexpected places. Well, what I'd like to see, so we've, we've, most of us uh, who have dealt with exhibition stores will be aware of the. Um, British Museum Oddie Test spreadsheet of <laughs> tested paints that are okay. I feel like we need a version of that, a crowdsourced version of that, but for anything you can think of, like, yeah. you know, and polyester all- carpet and sanitary <laughs> products and crayons and like <laughs> everything. And if that already exists, please tell me. <laughs> but except the difference there is that you're looking at materials that might be used for temporary or permanent display. And actually what you're talking about Sarah's is is materials that are part of the artwork itself so you can't substitute it with a better type of bread or sanitary towel or whatever you know I mean it's (laughs) well I mean I think it you that's true but you can anticipate problems you can anticipate problems that might be caused by one part of the object to another part of the object and Mm. I say that as a as a route to a solution mainly because I feel like doing accelerated aging tests of everything around us (laughs) might be difficult <laughs> difficult to manage i mean no but i imagine people haven't done maybe they have done accelerating aging tests on sanitary products but maybe that's the issue with all these transient materials that the artists are using that, that we just don't know the longevity and how how they're going to react or live in the future and maybe maybe that's a question of like when things then become replicas and and things get swapped out especially with um, a lot of the larger installation art pieces where you've got multiple objects sometimes it's actually it's the documentation that holds together the installation rather than the actual physical object themselves so it's like what Mm. is the artwork is it the concept of the artwork or is it the actual physicality of the artwork and and it's kind of like getting down to you know the meaning of the artwork in itself and if it's not going to last is it is it okay then to acknowledge that the latex sheet that we installed we know that's not going to last forever you know in a hundred years time it won't be with us and as conservators maybe it's just about documenting it now and not trying to preserve things forever i don't know i don't know how how can keep everything alive forever when it's it obviously is not meant to sarah do you have conversations with the artists that you're in contact with about how durable the materials they're using are likely to be and is that something they're interested in do they care do some of them do you find that some of them actually want things to decay Yes, yeah, so some of them, we've talked to some artists and they've changed the types of materials they've used. So obviously some of the artwork that they've given us, we can't do anything about now, but it's, it's changed processes and that they're going to, to start making for, like they're, they're changing the ways they're looking at in the future. But also at the same mm. time, we find a lot of artists change their minds about what the artwork means and represents. So we have um, some outside sculpture and one of those pieces, it was supposed to deteriorate and over time and the artist was very happy with that. And then all of a sudden they change their mind and decide, actually, no, it, it shouldn't deteriorate. I want you to replace aspects of it over time and it always needs to look in a certain way. So it's not just even about the materials and how they change. It's actually the artists and how they decide that the artwork's going to change. It's really, yeah, it's just unusual. That sounds like a total minefield because 
the, the we're used i think maybe as conservatives we're used to the idea of it is accessioned it is now under our care and we put on mm. the gloves and the coat and we go excellent now we can use acid free everything and it's all under our control but it sounds like if especially if you're still fostering um relationships with the artists as an institution it sounds like you've got constantly changing goalposts in a way yeah, absolutely. And then, so as a as a role for the conservator, we then do we then just become like the mediators between the institute and the artists, and trying to make them understand what what we want or what what is needed, or you know, trying to understand a way forward for for the artwork. I don't know. Like, d- does our role change depending on the contemporary art and the artists? So what are the what the I feel like I've just got challenges written in really big letters. <laughs> I don't want. I feel like I'm always the one that goes. Yeah, well, this is really hard, isn't it? Isn't this really hard? Um, and I don't want to sound really negative. But do you find that a, an aspect of your role is actually communicating the goals of conservation to artists and to other members of the art gallery? Well, we do try and get as much documentation as possible from the artists, even just down to the actual materials yeah. and the techniques they've used. That's kind of the basics. But we always quite like to mm-hmm. know when we acquire pieces, the exact standards of how they want to display things, how they want it right. to be visually impactful. So it might, it's not just a case of um, saying one object, it'll be how the room looks, the paint colour on the walls, you know, every, everything down to the tiny details of how they actually want the pieces to work. So it's, it's not just a conservation job, it's the curatorial jobs, it's all the technicians, it's kind of like a very much a, the Institute needs all this information and it all needs to be documented to get that idea. I've written down question need for conservator. And I think what I meant by that is, I wonder if a lot of people question whether these things need conservation at all partly because they use often ephemeral materials they're modern i think a lot of people would think well okay so if something uses i don't know marigold rubber gloves or a piece of bread or something like that and something happens to it can't you just replace it with another bit do you need a conservator do we actually even need to be conserving these things and i just wondered if that was an attitude you'd encountered sarah i don't think i have encountered that attitude but i can see where you're coming from i know that yeah, if if we can't conserve it, then do we need it? And then do we need a conservator in the first place? I think it's always nice mm. to be needed. Yeah. <laughs> well, we always need we all, whatever it is. Even if you were working with a collection of just concept art that didn't have any, you know, um, accessories, I guess you there would always be the need for somebody to make that decision and to, I suppose, take the responsibility of the condition of the artwork on. So it, even it yeah. may also be the person who replaces the rubber gloves because at the end of the day, an artist mm. will always in the end die. <laughs> and that's, you can't, we can't always just allow for, oh yeah, for the next 20 years, this person's just going to come and change the rubber gloves every five years. But what you were saying, Sarah, about um, some artists preferring for your objects to go back to their studios and yeah. for them to do the interventions. I mean, that's kind of, that's not conservation, that's remaking isn't it? Yeah. Coombs, who um, is quite famous for, if any of his artwork gets scratched or damaged, he'll want his artwork to be sent back to his studio to be refinished again. Um, and if mm. any conservator touches his artwork, he'll actually disown it. And he'll say, actually, I didn't create that in the end. Um, you've ruined my artwork and what? therefore <laughs> it is, has got no, no value. Wow. So they can actually disown the artwork and say, this is now, it renders your art useless. I mean, I, I really so, want that person to chill out because I feel like... <laughs> That's so interesting. Wow. Because then 
It's so extreme. It is extreme, but then I suppose maybe the attitude of the artist is part of it. Well, I... Waggling my eyebrows at you with Norcam. Yeah, Theoretical with being today. Yeah, you know what? That that could in fact be part of it, yes. So I would like to sideline from ethics and talk about practicalities. I'm still giggling internally from bread being considered an accessory. (laughs) (laughs) I just used a word, okay? I mean, accessories to performance art, I suppose. I get it. Like a ball of wool isn't the artwork, but it's an accessory to the artwork. Bread-based accessories. I'm just really enjoying it. Okay, sorry. Okay, I'll I'll grow up now. I'm fine. I'd just like to know what kind of performance art involves bread. (laughs) I mean... (sighs) Feeding the pigeons? I was going to say that um, there was someone who asked you a performance-based piece that involved eggs um, at the art gallery, and they wanted to smash eggs on the floor as part of their performance. So you're not too far off, Chloe, with your bread. (laughs) Wow, good example. <laughs> so I have two two sides of um, the practicalities that I'd like to talk about. One is the which we've touched on a bit, um, which is the the inherent decayedness of materials and mm-hmm. the um, the use of decay as artwork. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is challenges generally, as in logistical, physical challenges of putting these objects on display so i don't mind what we talk about first um maybe maybe should we pick on the um the challenges of um of the display so i'm just thinking just from a practicality point of view the cost of installation for a lot of these modern and contemporary artworks they're um some of them are really expensive on display so then are you narrowing it down as to who can actually own these these artworks because who can display them because it costs quite a lot sometimes so I know that well we did we did install one piece recently and it cost about 10 grand to install just one piece of artwork and it took about nine technicians to install it as well that's with expertise in in in-house like just getting external companies in to come and help us install these works for for a two to three month exhibition as well. So you can see that if um if a smaller council run gallery got gifted some of these artworks, they would just never be able to display them. Yeah, yeah and that's sort of almost elitist, really, isn't it? The the idea that in order to be dis- something to be for something to be displayed in the way that it's is required, yeah, you'd need to shell out yeah. a huge chunk of money. In your mind, do you feel, Sarah, that oversized objects are a specific thing and that the oversizedness is the, the, the important aspect of the work? Um, I think sometimes. I think artists now have the capability to make such large things that have such impact, yeah. don't they? I think sometimes size is the, is the impact that wants to be the shocking aspect of it, which does, t- A, take up lots of storage yeah. space, yeah. which mm. I know all museums and art galleries struggle with. So I know that we d- we have acquired works that don't even fit in our stores. We have to um, rent external stores just to fit them in, in other spaces, or they just have to stay on site but not in ideal locations around the building, unfortunately. Um, one of the things apart from the difficulties of long-term storage for these things is also health and safety and I don't think that's something that's always considered either by the artists making these things or by the museums collecting them I'm thinking about things like um, Mark Quinn's sculptures that are made of frozen blood (laughs) for example so so he makes um, sculptures of that are replicas of his head (laughs) and made out of his own blood for example and I think more recently he's been making ones out of blood from refugees and so on but these are things that have very specific storage requirements in that obviously they have to stay frozen all the time 
And in fact, there was, I've, I've found a story <laughs> from The Guardian in about 2002. So about 11 years after this sculpture was made, there was a rumour that uh, Saatchi, who had collected it, um, had just been keeping it in a domestic freezer. And when he had been having work done on his kitchen the builders had unplugged the freezer as part of the work and then discovered this kind of trickle of red liquid spreading across the kitchen floor now obviously he denied this (laughs) we should say uh, and refused to comment on the story and lots of people said well actually if you had an artwork like that it would be in its own dedicated freezer and you'd make sure the builders didn't just unplug it or whatever but these things are very vulnerable to that but the secondary issue to that is that (laughs) these are things made with human blood and it is exposing people working in that gallery to any of the risks that come with dealing with human bodily fluids and is that reasonable absolutely and it's not just blood i mean people make artworks out of all kinds of things and um so there are potentially risks there i'm thinking also about um damien hurst's things that are preserved in formaldehyde i was that sprang Mm. to mind as well yeah and i know somebody did actually measure that and just said that there were measurable levels of formaldehyde next to the tanks and of course they claimed it wasn't enough to endanger human no. health but if you're say a gallery attendant who's standing next to this object day in day out maybe it would have an effect i don't know so so i have uh, an example that i've just remembered about artwork that was essentially well it was quite nice actually as a concept i liked it but i did roll my eyes at like the perfectness of this as, <laughs> okay. as something that would cause the conservation problems it's Go hilarious on. it was iron casts in the shapes of continents filled with salt water and the idea was that um, they would evaporate and this was a comment on climate change Ah. i apologize i don't remember the name of the artist i believe it was called evaporation interesting concept really interesting concept but of course they instantly started to corrode and when i asked about this they you know the the part of the thing was it's this is the point this is the it's meant to look like this but you know i did see that there were bits that were particularly thin uh, and so they would start leaking and they would stop stop holding water and what i'm wondering about is does that then that changes then the function and the display potential of the artwork Hmm. and i don't know as a conservator how i would do that how i I would work with that because the point was to leave salt do we consider that some artworks are just almost like a one-off performance like this can be done so many times and then never again What, what are your thoughts on that sarah i think yeah we just have to either talk to the artists and and say yeah will artworks just only last for a set amount of time do they have a finite life cycle and if so and what does the artist want to do with the artwork that's left do then they um remake the work or is that is that it do we just kind of call it an end and say you know that's the end of that that work and but then what do we do with the work that's still remaining of that piece so you might have certain continents that have completely vanished but other bits that are are quite intact for the the example that you're giving chloe so what do you do do you destroy the rest of the work because part of the work's already gone i suppose that's the up to the artist's discretion thing is particularly interesting well if it were an archaeological pot then you would make gap fills (laughs) true yeah well yeah yeah but then it would have to hold water So we've already talked about how there are many interesting types of materials involved in contemporary art conservation. And uh, that's one of many things that I had a chat with Julian Agor about, actually. And we'll listen to that interview now. 
Uh, my name's Julia Nagel. I'm a paintings conservator, essentially, but I've, in the last sort of 10, 15 years, uh, specialised much more in modern and contemporary art and specifically paintings. I qualified in 92 from Newcastle on the easel painting course. I worked for 10 years part-time Hamilton Carr Institute in Cambridge and part-time sort of building up a private practice, sharing a studio with other conservators in London. Um, and I did that for about 10 years, so that's on much, much older paintings. And then in 2003, 2004, I went to Tate Modern and did a um, maternity cover for the conservator, painting conservator there, and then got really sort of into the modern and contemporary from that point on mainly. And then I run my own private studio. So from 2016, I've just been exclusively working in my own practice and building that up. And we've now got sort of seven, eight freelancers who work with us and one permanent member of staff. So we're kind of onwards and upwards with that. So we moved to a studio in Wood Green in North London and um, normally sort of working then on, on more modern paintings from about 1900 onwards. So it's normally paintings and relatively recent. Goes right up to the present day, really. I mean, the thing is that we've qualified in paintings, but I think one of the main things with modern artworks is obviously there's an awful lot of mixed media. Mm. So, I mean, we've had things on velvet, we've had things on patchwork canvas, we've had dung balls that have been attacked by puppies, we've had all <laughs> sorts of different. <laughs> so it can really vary. So sometimes you're just thinking, well, is it a painting or is it to work on paper? Do I need to? So we work closely with other um, conservatives anyway. But, you know, we do often have things that are a total mixture. So we would then be working in a team with other specialists. I don't think there's a kind of normal in a way, but we do as painting conservators, you know, we're not working on works on paper normally. And um, if it's sculpture or a mixed media, then we will work with a sculpture conservator or somebody else who knows more about that material. So it's a constant sort of voyage of discovery, really. That's what I love about conservation is that it keeps throwing these challenges at you and you just have to kind of discover new skills and new ways of dealing with exactly. things. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. I think that's a really good point. And, you know, you are doing that with older paintings as well, in the sense that mm. there are lots of decisions to be made about, you know, what what's restoration, what's not, what's original, what's supposed to be cleaned off. You know, well, it might be many, many different things. Or, mm. So there are always these kind of problems to solve. But I particularly really, li I really like the problem solving side of contemporary and modern works, definitely. And that sort of massive variety of materials and techniques that that you've got you know it's un, un, undeniably kind of a wider range than it is with older paintings for sure I mean you've already kind of widened my my look on this this subject a bit because when I think modern art and I think oh people are using acrylics instead of oils and I bet that's a nightmare to deal with but maybe I'm entirely wrong about that maybe acrylics are quite nice to work with <laughs> Do you know what? They are quite nice. They are actually quite good because there is also a lot of research, fortunately, that's gone into acrylics and how to clean them. I mean, it is, you're absolutely right in the sense that they're very different. You know, they mm. behave really differently from oil paints. So, for example, like if you're cleaning dirt off an acrylic paint and you really don't generally want to be using deionized water. Mm. 
and that would actually really potentially drive dirt into paint film and things. So it's really different. So I think you've got to understand that you are dealing with a different material and and act accordingly and sort of know your materials and things. But there is there is Tate did a really big project and it's Tate and Atzer Art. They did a, a big um, project into cleaning modern paints and then now of course there's the the whole sort of caps cleaning acrylic painted surfaces workshops that are going around and sort of tour, tour the world and run by the Getty and, and Tate and National Gallery in Washington and places. So there's a lot of research, fortunately, that's gone into all of this over the last few years, which is enormously helpful. So there is quite a lot of information out there. But yeah, you really do you need to treat them differently. They behave differently. They're made up different materials. So it is important. But there are so many other things like um, we've had a mirrored surface, like literally oh, um, silver mirrored surface on a canvas or else we've got quite a lot of metallics and things actually and also um yeah so that the paints themselves are really different and then you've also got things like you know metal maybe moving parts or mm. i don't know somebody like john layton might use books you know found books and mm. metal and wire and rust and silicon and so it's just an awful lot of different things so <laughs> even with um, paintings we've got paintings with kind of foam sponges as part of them or oh my gosh um, so we have got somebody who works with us who specializes in modern materials and she specializes in plastic she's been doing this Karine van Albel she's been doing um, research into plastics and how to even identify them mm. But since she came to us, amazingly, like we've got tons of plastics. Like we've we've got one painting downstairs made of reflector fabric, but it's not really a painting. It just looks like a painting because it's kind oh, of that's fabric crazy. stretched on wood. So you know, generally speaking, I still say a lot of it is painting. Yeah, and they are still paintings, but there are also other things that definitely come in resins, all sorts of different things. But what would you say the biggest challenges are working with modern media are? Apart from just the massive variety and knowing, you know, when you need to get somebody else's advice or whatever, which is common, I would say, I'd say in terms of if we're just talking about the paintings, it's the solubility, which is completely different from older paintings. So if you're used to working on older paintings, you know, we quite often can't use white spirit anywhere near a painting or defaulty or anything like that. You've got to go to maybe shell sortie and aliphatic or something. You can't. Um, they're very, very soluble. So or soluble in very different solvents mm. and um, so that not only for cleaning but that really makes a difference when you're trying to do reversible retouching that can make a big difference so we sort of feed off people like maybe paper conservatives who have to work on a much more porous surface so yeah. we're not dealing with a varnished paint film normally and that makes quite a big difference so you know if we're cleaning we're cleaning directly onto that paint film as well rather than having any kind of varnish as a barrier yeah if we're surface cleaning cleaning off dirt looking at the objects conservation side of things you know we tend to use acrylics precise you know to retouch things on the basis that it's different from the paint that's already on it but of course that doesn't apply when the no, original exactly. substrate is acrylic exactly and then also you know a lot of the things like i don't know paraloid for example mm. b72 which painters conservators working on older paintings were quite often used as a really good material that would mm. dissolve yeah. most of the paintings that we go anywhere near you know you can't use it so yeah, yeah so it makes that very different we very often working with sort of water-based retouching or even dry 
sometimes dry pigment or, or you know, very much less bound things. Mm. And also the, the sort of gloss as well that we're trying. It's really challenging finding things that don't just make stuff shiny. Yeah. You know, the surfaces are really important, often, you know, quite sort of matte surfaces and or even shiny surfaces, but the sort of pristine surface is quite an important part of many yeah, modern works, nice. isn't yeah. it? So, yeah, surfaces, I suppose, are, are generally probably a lot more fragile in a way than some of the older paintings that might have had a varnish or whatever. Mm. But then on the other hand, things like canvas are quite nice and flexible because they're still young and youthful, so they're yeah, still quite elastic. Yeah. So if you've got dents and things like that in them, they're often a bit easier because they're not set in their ways like old canvases. Yeah. <laughs> they're not as stiff. <laughs> and they haven't necessarily been interfered with by conservators in the past. So oh, yeah. You're the first people to properly, like, interfere. In, yeah, exactly. That, I mean, I think that's a really big responsibility. Yeah, that's and true. And something we take very seriously because, you know, you don't want to set something off on a kind of restoration journey for the rest of its life you know having to have these sort of processes reversed or anything but you know you do have in your head right okay how many paintings have I seen where I kind of think "Mm, would have been better if the conservator hadn't done that but also you know it does mean that actually often what you're looking at is the original artwork at least it's a bit less complicated in that front. Is there a particular material that gives you more headaches than any other? I would say not something that artists use but the thing that gives us more headaches than anything else is poor handling. Mm. Yeah, and wrapping. I mean, in the past, people aren't using so much bubble. I don't think now, but mm-hmm. wrapping materials <laughs> stuck to slightly sticky modern paintings <sighs> where they haven't fully dried. Oh, that is my bet noir, really. I'd say. And then also, I suppose people just handling things so that they crack. Because you know, if you've got a flat paint surface mm. and it's got a crack in it, it just a flat colour will just not. There's nowhere to hide. You know, there's nowhere to disguise things. So I suppose. Irri- you know, irreversible damage being done through sort of just poor handling or poor packing. Mm. Really sad. Yeah. I suppose one of the things that we've got quite a lot coming up now is people from the sort of 70s, 80s using Alkid primers where they're really brittle. That's a big, you know, cracks in modern paintings. But I don't think, I don't think there is a particular sort of material because honestly they vary such a lot anyway yeah and also i quite like we quite like the fact that artists use all these different materials somehow you know that keeps it really entertaining like you said yeah really varied so i think in a way the artists probably most of the time are okay with what they're doing it's just the way that they're then handled and they leave the studio what advice would you give to conservators out there who are glancing worriedly at their modern art i would say like with all of these things they're all problems that need solving, aren't they? So they're all, it's, you need to break down any problem into bite-sized pieces, I mm. would say. Just the same as with anything. I think if you are really worried about your modern art, you maybe don't have quite enough experience yet. Mm-hmm. You may think, oh, you know, I need to call somebody who perhaps does have a bit more experience or get some experience at a a studio or or gallery where you get to work on some because you know they are a bit different and I think it's important for all of us to understand our own limits isn't it and if you really are worried then you know I think as with anything else if you're worried you need to unpack that problem and you need to perhaps get advice from somebody else as well i think that's solid advice for anyone out there really on many levels (laughs) and there's no shame in asking for help or advice 
ever. Oh, completely. No, exactly right. I think as well, I would say, you know, there's loads of stuff. If you're working with modern art and contemporary art, there's tons of like artist interviews online. You can just, there's so much you can do, but just, just by looking online mm. and sort um, of finding out a bit more about what's meant to be there, what isn't. Um, the other thing I would say probably is that it's really difficult sometimes to test on modern paintings. There's not often, there's not really anywhere to hide and anywhere yeah. to do tests and things. So you sometimes have to try to make mock-ups, which obviously is sort of, you know, a bit limited in terms of having identical reactions on a mock-up to mm. an original painting. We've worked with artists where they've actually given us samples of bits oh, of paintings fabulous. and things. Yeah, really useful. So that can sometimes happen as well. Do you have any advice for people out there who'd like to pursue a career in modern art conservation? I think it's not that easy in Britain, is it, to find actual sort of training courses for that? No. I, mean, I would say really sort of develop your problem-solving skills, definitely. Mm. Personally, I think it's really great if you've worked in different places and you've built up a bit of a network because I don't know that anyway in conservation everybody can do every part of it brilliantly all the time in isolation mm. I never really felt like that but I think especially with modern things you know they are so diverse it's brilliant the more you've got a kind of community and people that you can just refer to ask for help or whatever that's really great and I think you build that up sometimes going to conferences and being part of that but also potentially there's a lot of freelance work out there isn't there and mm. I think you can get work in different places and just sort of get informed don't be afraid to collaborate i think definitely that i think you do need the person is a paintings conservator i think that paper conservation is really interesting mm. but i just think kind of the way that they work in i mean certainly for sort of cleaning retouching and not being able to kind of just have to be super careful of your surface and not disrupting it and oh yes i suppose the other thing is to realize that you're going to a large part of any project that you do probably be spent in testing mm. testing your own techniques and methods and then problem solving and all the research and everything and not so much time on interacting because in a way you know you have to be really I think really reticent about intervention you do try to um, I think you know less is more less is more because you might be retouching something that's still changing yeah people don't like restoration is quite a dirty word in the sort of contemporary art market as yeah. well really yeah funny, really frowned upon um so if you're really sort of into a lot of painting and a lot of interacting with things it might also be quite frustrating yeah um, so it's almost more for the experimental and problem solving person i think so mm. and possibly i would say possibly the sociable person because i think it is some i, I kind of think it does demand a bit of interact that's just my personal opinion <laughs> i'll probably feel like that generally about conservation so maybe that's not so relevant so finally what's the best thing about working on contemporary art um the color the massively colorful studio full of vibrant and happy paintings you know rather oh, than love it <laughs> the fact that it's quite um, it's not brown it, <laughs> it's not brown and it's not a man in wig and tights <laughs> Not a portrait of a man in wig and tie. You've got the living artist, which yeah. is really exciting. It's constantly throwing up new challenges. It's not smelly or solventy because you can't generally use any solvent. So that's quite nice. The studio is mm. not smelly. 
it's also quite good in the sense and then it's slightly more boring way i suppose but you can do preventive things that actually you can catch things before they're damaged mm. so we do a lot of insert backboards and things like that on modern paintings that aren't framed and they're not protected in that way so and you feel like well that's actually quite meaningful at this point because you're able with the knowledge that we've got you can actually help to prevent damage yeah you know before it's too late yeah early intervention yeah and it's never boring i don't think it's ever boring oh and they're subversive generally i quite like the fact that you've got Mm. a lot of art that's made you know it's not commissioned by the church or the royal family yeah thank you so much for talking to us today julia that was fabulous to hear I absolutely loved it when she said it's not all men in oh, wigs yes. and uh, breeches and that it's very colourful. Oh, yes. That was great. I did love that. <laughs> and, and also her point about it being a much nicer environment to work in because paintings conservators use a lot of yeah. solvents and they're often using mixtures of quite toxic solvents as well. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. To, to be forced not to use yeah. that. It's brilliant. Yeah, interesting aspects, definitely. The thing that I found most interesting was the poor handling element because I'm uh, obviously we're all used to working with old stuff. The newness of materials can cause problems, and I was really, really interested in the amount of damage that can be caused by just handling something badly. I also really enjoyed what Julia was saying about the responsibility of being the very first person to to carry out any intervention on these objects. It's it's funny because... Both the responsibility of that and also the joy of not having loads of previous generations of conservators come (laughs) along and kind of f*** it up with treatments that are then difficult to undo. So It kind of harks back to our wet stuff episode where... Uh, people were also talking about the immense responsibility of like making such a massive intervention being for for contemporary art being the yeah. first one and for waterlogged materials to be the kind of definitive one yeah. that ensures any kind of preservation which is kind of crazy so it's kind of funny how it all comes around to the immense pressure we're under sometimes <laughs> <laughs> no sweat everything's fine yeah everything's fine nobody's dying everything's fine but we should be paid more. But we should definitely be paid more. I'm amazed that we haven't mentioned that in this series yet, actually. <laughs> Pay us more. Done. Yeah. <laughs> Dick. I was just going to say something um, that I thought of before when, when you were introducing was um, of an artwork that I've been working on recently, which is um, by a contemporary artist that we just acquired. And it was by an artist called Barry Finnan, who's um, not a very well-known artist, quite local to Manchester. But he uses um, Posca pen. Have you heard of them? They're like, basically like a felt te- tip pen that you get yeah. in art shops. Oh, yeah. And so he's so he he's used a lot of those on on like canvases, and so we attach them just onto canvases. But he doesn't like these these stretches either. Um, but Posca pens have got no light fastness at all, and they um, they fade so fast in the light. So it's then that artwork, even though it's brand new, it's the fragility of it again that it's just not going to last. Wow, Chloe was laughing at my face then because I use quite a lot of these pens. <laughs> <laughs> So now you'll be like, oh, I just keep those in the dark. It's fine. (laughs) They're preserved digitally. It's fine. (laughs) Okay, carry on. (laughs) Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, so we did some light tests on them. So, um, yes, and they they last for, if if you put them in an exhibition at 200 Lux, they last for under a year. That's amazing. Sensitive. (gasps) It's unbelievable. When you say last, 
how much damage do you see? It's, it's considerable fading wow. and colour change. Wow. Oof, that's, that's a harsh that's life. That's so interesting. So on the topic of what artists use, um, years ago I had this really great conversation with a conservator who does a lot of training courses. Mm-hmm. And she pitched this idea that maybe we should run workshops for artists and crafters and, you know, people who create hey. things and teach them about what materials are likely to last and how they can test if something is likely to last, such as leave it out in the sun for a bit or, you know, put it in your oven, you know, just like do basic testing themselves or pick things that either deteriorate quickly because that's what they want to achieve Mm -hmm. or things that last for a long time because that's what they want to achieve. That you could teach people who are creative about the different material choices. So I work with someone who does do that kind of outreach with um, quilters Ah. in particular, because people who are making these quilts, obviously a huge amount of labour goes into making them, and they're often intended as heirloom items. And so my colleague, uh, she's run a couple of workshops, I think, with quilters, talking to them about the kinds of selection of materials and, and the polyester batting and all that kind of things that might degrade and how they can make choices that will ensure that their quilts will last longer. That's so cool. So I'm, I'm glad to hear someone's doing right, that. Yeah. I still think it's a really good idea. So if yeah. anyone else out there is talking to uh, people about what materials they can use for, for you know, for whatever purpose that they want, if it, they want it to degrade quickly or they want it to last forever, you know, like I, I would love to hear about it because I think that's really interesting Definitely. and a, a great conversation to have with a creative community. I was just going to say, I found a website that, um, that do like, fastness tests and things on um, some modern materials that you can find in art stores so mm. I'll send you the link yeah. and you can pop it on the bottom of this so yes please brilliant so in terms of training Sarah what have you found because obviously you, you started as objects um, and you've specialized in a way in, into this what have you found um, available to specialize and to learn and study so there are quite there are a few um, networks around and a few groups. So there's um, an icon group that's just started up quite recently. There's their Inca as well. They're the international works for the conserving of contemporary arts, based predominantly over in the states. But they're um, they've got quite a lot of resources on their website as well, which is very useful. And there's there's quite a big network over in the Netherlands as well for for Europe. And there's also things like the modern materials conservation, plastics conservation at Westin, and there's the um, I believe you're going to a, a conference. Yeah, I'm going to uh, this Maastricht conference soon, and that's like a workshop on contemporary materials. There's also the NACCA, um, new approaches in the conservation of contemporary art, and I believe they've just had a conference. <laughs> And they seem to have talked about loads and loads of different things. And we've actually got Anthe, who's recorded something about that for us later on. So, Sarah, you mentioned about the contemporary art group for Icon. I've been able to speak to Anne French, um, who is a member of the Contemporary Art Network. I'm here with Anne French to talk about her experience as a contemporary art conservator. Hi, Anne. Hello. Anne, could you first tell us a bit about yourself and how that's led to your involvement with contemporary art? First, I should say that I never expected to ever have to work with contemporary art. Uh, I started my training and my career in working with, uh, expecting to work with historic textiles for the whole of my life. 
And it was only really when I got a position here at the Whitworth Art Gallery, which has one of the leading collections of contemporary art in the UK, that I had to grapple with what it meant um, to me as a conservator and whether I had to change how I worked and what I worked with. So how has your background in uh, textiles conservation, how has that helped um, or impacted with your career and your understanding of contemporary art conservation? What I'd say is, especially as a textile conservator and for one of my posts as an area museum council conservator where I had to cover textiles of every kind, whether it was the back of a TV to a banner to a christening robe to a sampler to a piece of dress to firemen's uniforms, is that we have such a wide range of materials to deal Mm -hmm. with historically and now in terms of material and in terms of scale. Yeah. And it makes you problem solvers. (laughs) You can't not think laterally and sideways as a textile conservator, and that has enabled me to appreciate a load of the problems that come with contemporary art. So it's a fairly new discipline that we're developing and there's various things going on around the world that we'll talk about later. Um, Do you see any obstacles to development in the discipline in this country? I think contemporary art is... People tend not to have certain kinds of... Well, what is contemporary art, which is a huge, wide and philosophical question, which Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go into. But in terms of institutions like ourselves here at the Whitworth, Manchester Art Gallery, the Tate and other places, it is the term given to a kind of art based on materials, very installation-based, very multimedia, Mm -hmm. often performative, Mm -hmm. which is bringing in display items that you probably wouldn't have at home. Mm -hmm. I would exclude here sort of people who are still working in traditional print, weaving and embroidery Mm -hmm. forms, and there are plenty of Mm -hmm. those. What I think we're looking at is the kind of installations and time-based media material that we've had here at the Whitworth and have had to put on. What's different about it, I think, is that it is being displayed. Right. When I started at the Victoria and Albert Museum... Um, in my training contemporary Mm -hmm. art was barely displayed Mm -hmm. we are now expected to display it and put it on and Mm -hmm. look after it which didn't happen before and I think that's one of the things for me that has really changed that you go into the great national institutions and there are things that are made now on Mm -hmm. display in front of you well Mm -hmm. that didn't happen years ago so we have to look after it and we have to display it and we have to learn how it's made and we often have to make it for the artists. I mean, mm-hmm. we are given a brief which we then have to construct. It is also the art of now. It hasn't had a chance to decay. Whereas we all know that we work with the survivors from mm-hmm. the historic periods, and yeah. there is a lot that has not survived. Of course. And we are now expecting that the installation that we put in to a gallery, that is all going to be kept mm-hmm. and is capable of being, yeah. of surviving and that's probably not the case, Mm -hmm. but we're trying very hard Mm. to do it. The way to do it, I think, is it isn't an isolated discipline, and it calls upon all of us and all our skills. You are looking at every single conservator, wherever you train, whatever you train to work with, you will have an input into contemporary art, Mm -hmm. because the large installations have everything from textiles to plastics to metal to pottery to works of art on paper, to, to painted surfaces, to, to wood. And we all have to contribute. The only specialism, I would say, is the time-based media in the film and right. photographic elements. Um, 
and that sort of reflects a traditional discipline but they all come together in an installation mm -hmm. and you also have to work with audiovisual technicians riggers sound technicians uh, musicians uh, all sorts and sometimes the art is painted directly onto the wall mm -hmm. by the, the the artist's studio so what is fascinating about it is the range of people yeah. that you end up working with and all contribute to what mm -hmm. makes a contemporary arts installation it's not something you can just sit at a bench and work <laughs> on anymore no. no it's a vast collaboration then. it is vast collaboration absolutely <laughs> So what do you see as the challenges of this collaboration then? I see two forms of challenges really. One, I think those of us who work with contemporary art tend to work for institutions. So I think it's rarer for people in the private sector to encounter this material. Therefore, it's just harder to appreciate what it involves. Mm -hmm. And for those of us who do work in the public sector institutions who are displaying and acquiring and storing this material, mm -hmm. it's finding the opportunities when one's a busy yeah. conservator to learn from others. And this is, for me, where you know there are roles for conferences, workshops, just going and working somewhere else, doing placements, couriering an object mm -hmm. where you can see something being installed by others and you can always learn from that. So the challenge is, those of us who do have some experience, is how to best disseminate it and how to disseminate mm -hmm. it. And it's not, for me, just a traditional conference. It has to be wider than that. Right. And, of course, these days there's always the, the, the challenge of cost for anyone. So yeah. can you take time out of work? Can your employer afford to let you go somewhere for a conference to a placement or whatever? So we need to find ways to share better. Mm -hmm. And I know ICON has, um, is starting a network for contemporary art conservation, yes. but it's early days yet and it's still mm -hmm. finding its feet. But I think we need feedback from the wider sector to know what's really needed by those, the, those people who aren't doing it every day. Mm -hmm. So we've just seen, probably on social media, many of us have seen the um, NACCA meetings, uh, the New Approaches to the Conservation of Contemporary Art meetings in Maastricht. Um, you mentioned the Contemporary Art Network. Is that one of the main ways, then, you feel we can collaborate worldwide? It's, there seems to be quite a lot going on in the discipline in the rest of Europe. I think Europe has definitely got a head start on the UK in terms of disseminating information. Mm -hmm. I wonder personally whether that's a reflection of the lack of conservators in institutions in this country with contemporary right. art. And I think fewer of our institutions have until recently acquired contemporary art. Mm -hmm. It tends to be the larger ones. Mm -hmm. So how do we, probably not the moment, given mm -hmm. what's going on in the UK, mm -hmm. to, to, to wonder how we're going to work with Europe. But I do know that Going to, I went to a lot of conferences to start with when I first came to the Whitworth and it was really useful for me to mm -hmm. see where to look for information and to whom right. to approach for information because it was clear that there are certain organisations and people who have a wealth of information and experience to call upon right. and I've received nothing but generosity when consulting mm -hmm. them. So we do need to find a way of disseminating information and I think it's something all the groups in ICON probably need to grapple with mm -hmm. because personally I make a distinction between modern materials 
and contemporary art. Yes. It's, um, we all, every single discipline in conservation has to get to grips with modern materials, Mm -hmm. but possibly not everyone is going to have to get to grips Mm -hmm. with contemporary art. And I think a lot of the issues that seem to come up with contemporary art, we should be doing as conservators anyway, which is the teamworking, the collaboration, Mm -hmm. the research especially the consultation mm-hmm. because although in contemporary art we it is almost a prerequisite that you consult the artist well surely we should be doing that for everything that we we work on you know whether you're consulting an expert in the field or the cultural community from whom the work you are working on originates that applies whatever you know contemporary art is not unique here mm-hmm. So I think all of conservation can learn from some of the experiences of people who've been working with contemporary arts in terms of communication skills, communication, documentation, Mm -hmm. and just general attitude to problem-solving that it forces on you. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Anne, for speaking to The C Word. That was really, really interesting. Not at all. Hello everyone, my name is Anthe Sugliotti and I'm an objects conservator. I have worked primarily in archival, paper-based collections around London, but I have a deep and long-standing interest in the conservation of contemporary art, which derives from my fascination in the properties and deterioration of plastics and the ethical challenges with regards to their conservation. It is fair to say that there's plenty of opportunities to get challenged in contemporary art, So today marks a month, more or less, that I've had attending talks, conferences and workshops related to this issue. First was the West End Plastic Seminar I did with Chloe, which was informative, exciting and fun. Then I went to Vanishing Point, which was a virtual reality preservation day conference at Central St. Martins. This opened a completely brand new can of worms, but it was thoroughly enjoyable. I found the willingness of the participants from the different institutions to collaborate and find solutions to the common dangers VR preservation presents very encouraging. You'll be able to find most of the talks and panel discussions online. Fast forward to the last event called the Lives of Net Art and held at the Tate Modern from the 3rd to the 4th of April. Very similar to the previously mentioned VR conference, yet another mind-bending experience focused on the preservation of born digital artworks. Very interesting talks from curators, artists and conservators alongside various workshops. I had a couple of amazing conversations with some well-experienced people on how to define what we need to preserve. Is it the software, the hardware? only the idea or all of the above? What is authenticity and where does artists intent lie according to different people? Because yeah, it's not a universally and mutually accepted concept. How are museums and galleries evolving through the changes of the nature of the artworks? I have to mention one very interesting point was made by the Whitney Museum's curator, Christian Paul which was regarding the distinction between the perception of digital artworks by people born before and people born after the digital era, 
with the younger generations blurring the boundaries between digital and physical reality much more effortless. All in all, it was a great experience. Last, but by far not least, the NACA conference, which happened in Maastricht in the end of March. It was a four-day event showcasing the developments done in the field by the members of the training and research program called New Approaches in the Conservation of Contemporary Art. It involved a solid quality of presentations by the PhD students and a variety of keynote speakers from theorists and professors to philosophers and lawyers. Because if you think that the contemporary arts relationship with legal issues such as authorship, ownership and authenticity are straightforward, well, think again. The talks were recorded and hopefully will be uploaded at the NACA's website very soon. For now, you can find the presentation abstracts on the website. Although it was fairly small, just under 150 people, so not intense at all, it was so overwhelmingly packed with new information, ideas and ethical challenges. Therefore, it was by far the most thought-provoking experience I've had so far. I also got to ask Vivian Van Saz, one of the NACA organizers, some questions regarding the program and the conference. I do apologize for the background noise and you will also have to excuse my nervousness because I'm fairly inexperienced in interviewing, let alone a legend like Vivian. That said, I hope you enjoy the interview. And so I'm sitting here with Dr. Vivian Van Saz, Assistant Professor at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the Maastricht University and the Director of its Resource Centre on Arts and Heritage, MACH. Uh, one of the main driving forces behind NACA, uh, the new approaches in the conservation of contemporary art, both as a PhD candidate supervisor and as an organiser. So thank you very much for joining me today. What were the main goals of this program when it started? So it must have been, I guess, about five years ago, or maybe even six years ago, when René van der Val, uh, who is a professor at, uh, at the same faculty, and I were working on actual several research projects, but it really has been a long trajectory of about 10 years or so with different projects that eventually led to this larger Marie Curie ITN, um, which is an initial training program. So it started with several research projects um, involving uh, lots of partners, also some um, PhD projects on contemporary art conservation. And at some point we received uh, funding from the Dutch government to establish a network, an international network. And that international network allowed us to develop this larger European proposal project on contemporary art conservation which really at that point, so that must be about five years ago, it really felt that the field was expanding, but there were also so many questions still yeah, needed to be answered. Um, and this training program seemed like a really nice format mm -hmm. to be able to address those questions, but also to train a new cohort of people who would be able to address those questions mm -hmm. and who could also cross the bridge or, or build bridges between academia and professions and 
work in museums or either in universities and who could speak to curators and to conservators. So it's really this idea of um, within the shifting field we need, and maybe not so much new, but... Um, innovative. Yeah, innovative people who can, who have this capacity or who are trained also in such a way that they can build these bridges mm-hmm. within conservation of contemporary art specifically. And that's what the Marie Curie ITN uh, proposal allowed um, to do, to have 15 uh, PhD candidates across Europe, uh, some based at universities, some based at museums, um, but always within this museum practice. Uh, so mm-hmm. very much very close to museum practices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lovely. How have the meetings and conferences like the one today seem to be set to achieve these goals that you just described? I don't don't know whether we've achieved the goals. I think we've established a lot, Mm -hmm. um, but it's maybe also too soon to to tell whether we've been able to achieve the goals. But so we, the the Marie Curie ITN, is really about training um, a generation within Europe that is able to kind of well cross geographical borders, um, sure. speak to each other, but also disciplinary borders, right? So, mm-hmm. and there's we developed a training program together with all the other partners and the beneficiaries in the project, which consisted of several winter and summer schools um, and also conferences. Mm-hmm. Having all these conversations with each other and expanding it and inviting other people. So in that sense, I think we've hopefully achieved our goals in the sense that there is now a real community of PhD candidates as well as our supervisors and all the other people who are here with us over the Mm -hmm. past few days or at other meetings that we had um, and were also kind of part of those conversations that we had. With the program coming to a conclusion, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. how how do you feel that the initial goals have been developed? I think when we started, now I'm talking from my own perspective, but couldn't have imagined that it would be such a community and that the you know the kind of relationships that they've established among themselves it's quite extraordinary but you could also tell and that's maybe also specific for a particular generation that for them it was really important to establish these networks mm. so at, from the start most of them were really outgoing and going to conference and, and we you know as a supervisor I also sometimes said no Please, you know, no <laughs> conferences anymore, no traveling. Slow Just down. Focus on your research, and you have to write a PhD, and that needs concentration and mm. time to think, and and you know, time to change your ideas, and so all these conferences and all these traveling. I mean, of course, that's also important, but within a three-year period, which is you know, yeah, ridiculous. At least in the Netherlands, a PhD is at least four years. Mm-hmm. So three years is really, really short to do, you know, to do such. A, innovative research also and thorough and thorough yes yeah so so I think that was also a challenge Um, but but it's not it hasn't ended right I mean it feels like it's a momentum today and Mm -hmm. this conference is a momentum but they will continue and we will continue and and these dissertations uh, a lot of them still have to be finished so (laughs) (laughs) so there's still work to do Yeah, yeah okay so 
since things seem to be continuing, mm. what do you think the future holds for these people, for the collaborators, mm. and for the future of research in contemporary yeah. art? Yeah. Maybe similar initiatives happening sometime soon? Yeah, That's, I'm, I'm, yeah I, I don't quite know. I think, again, it's too soon. I mean, we are thinking within the pool and also within MACH, it's an inter, interdisciplinary and interfaculty research center, so there are different faculties involved, mm-hmm. um, like the law faculty and the School of Business and Economics, and we had one panel today which also addressed legal issues and uh, tried also to bring in the art market and, and stakeholders like estates, right? Mm-hmm. So that was really, for me, that was one of the panels that I thought, I think this is many of the topics addressed within that panel, mm-hmm. I could consider that to be future research because I think that's where um, those are the topics that we maybe couldn't address 10 years ago mm-hmm. within the you know the conservation of contemporary arts field because there were other priorities. But at this point, I think we can now address and we should address these questions and try to to build bridges again between these worlds which are not separated from each other uh, uh, arts uh, or conservation the art market they're very much intertwined mm-hmm. but we hardly talk about it at least not in a kind of public or academic open way open mm-hmm. way yeah. mm-hmm. and I, I feel that that's where at least for me also it's that's an interesting um, yeah field to, to explore mm-hmm. further and I, yeah, I spoke to, of course, many of the, the, the ESRs, yeah, the early stage researchers, and some of them have already found new jobs mm. or have been contacted. And and I, I, yeah, I just really think that this network will stay as a network, right? I mean, they will see each other and, and we'll have more conferences. And I'm sure it will expand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and this is a start for them. Um, and I think also the SPMK in the Netherlands and together with Inca, um, I think they're already planning a next conference in two or three years. So, And of course we have ICOM and so there are so many of these shared conferences where I'm sure we'll meet again, right? Well, I'm very much looking forward to the, the next conferences. It's Thank you nice very much. Thank you. Um, In the second week of March 2019, I was lucky enough to go to the West Dean Plastics Conservation Short Course with Yvonne Shashua. That's right, the Hogwarts of conservation and the Queen of Plastics in museum collections. It's fair to say that this review is going to be overwhelmingly positive, so it's not so much a review as a brief description and some top tips. I attended as full board, which is £750 for a three-day course. You can save some money by staying elsewhere, but if you'll need to get funding for £500, which is the course fee, you may as well get the full amount and enjoy the full experience. It kicks off before dinner with a sort of meet and greet, which is a good setup for the nervous or shy, because it gives you some time to get used to your new colleagues in an intro to the historical development of plastics to set you up for the week. They're long days from nine to seven, but the topics are so varied and the individual sessions so well tailored that you're getting an intellectual workout without meeting the saturation point of your brains. We were all sent the notes in the form of lecture slides and I would advise printing them for making additional notes. Yvonne is extremely knowledgeable and deeply interested in the topic. 
so she squeezes in a huge amount of information, scientific and relating to museum collections. Don't be put off if you're not a scientist, though. Yvonne is very funny and patient. She uses relatable examples and visual descriptions to help you understand and remember. It's also quite repetitive, in a really good way. Each new section supports and references the last, so that you're encouraged to make connections and form memories. That's how my brain works, at least, and it really worked. And let's face it, most of us interested in plastics conservation are interested because of the experiences we've had and the problems we have to find solutions for. I love this community. Everyone I studied with was so interested and supportive and generous with experiences and stories and advice. Some special features of the course included a field trip to a plastics factory where we were shown some of the processes that leave diagnostic indicators on the objects, like extrusion, for example. Brenda Kennegan and Yannicka Langfeld were guest speakers, which was brilliant as they gave different perspectives on the problems facing museums. Brenda described her work in the identification of plastics and the development of a sort of danger list of the really problematic materials to either take action with or avoid altogether. Yannicka presented a number of fascinating case studies of plastics in the Science Museum collections, which were really eye-opening to the unexpected problems even a small amount of plastics can cause, like the wiring in an electrically powered doll's house, for example. In such a big museum as well, if something is melting on display, for example, the problem is expected to be solved. So pragmatic decision-making is really significant here. It's not just lectures and trips. For the practical learners, there were several open practical sessions that gave us a chance to touch and feel and think about the characteristics for identification and the potentials for treatment. It's worth noting that this is such a new and experimental discipline that there is no way to conserve plastics. You won't be taught a list of treatments to perfect that will solve all your problems. What you are taught, however, is the beginnings of how to respond to the problems of plastics deterioration, how to think about them as a discipline as distinct as the others. There are no rules yet and methods that are only just forming. We were taught foundations of these and encouraged to experiment. We were also introduced to the results of studies carried out by Yvonne and others on the cleaning of different types of plastics. And of course, and this is very important to me, the storage methods for different forms of plastics that will give them the best chance of survival for future display. What more can I say? This is a growing discipline in our profession and Yvonne Shishoya is at the forefront of it. And as a polymer scientist, she is perfectly suited to taking us back to our roots, getting a handle on what the materials are doing and developing solutions from there. It isn't easy, but it's so exciting. Okay, guys, that was a great talk. I feel like we covered a lot of ground. We covered so much ground. I feel like contemporary art conservation is becoming more and more in the presence of our minds in the profession. And that's so positive because there are other parts of the world that are doing so many great things, like in the Netherlands, as you just said, plastics research as I well. Think, I think something to remember is that maybe we need to take the scariness out of contemporary art because there's going to be a lot more of it because we are moving forward in time. Yes. And art will continue to be produced yes. and continue to come into our museums and it will be glorious and uh, we should love it sponges and all <laughs> maybe maybe not sponges <laughs> maybe not sponges <laughs> right thanks very much for joining us thank Sarah. you so much great thank you
If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisement. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening. With the C word, and you've been listening to Sarah Potter, Chloe Ramsey, Christina Rosaic, and me, Jenna Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about working with communities. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Diddy Music, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. Yeah, interlude. More lift music. Christina! Christina left. What?